Hey, everybody. It's January 17th, 2024. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Nunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, we finally got some snow after <laughs> uh, nearly two-year shutout here on the East Coast. I woke up on Tuesday morning after getting not a lot of sleep because of the Iowa caucus. And I thought I was dreaming. I'm like, is that... What is that white, fluffy thing on top of the grass outside? <laughs> and in fact, Mosh, it was snow. I've seen movies about this stuff. <laughs> yes. Was it enough for sledding? So it has been so long that there's actual snow that a lot of moms that I am friendly with in my neighborhood actually let their kids stay home from school to play in the snow. Whereas my husband and I were like, uh, mm. no, we're <laughs> and my daughter's going to school. <laughs> and I felt so bad because by the time she came home, it had kind of rains. It, it just was not good snow to sled or, you know, to, to do anything with. So <sighs> it lasted ever so briefly. We had a moment in time. Jill, that wasn't a problem for much of the Midwest. We were sharing your photos on the uh, Monu's Instagram feed over the weekend. Some of you experiencing two feet of snow, three feet of snow. Now that's a lot of snow, uh, a lot of shoveling, a lot of snow blowing. I mean, that's incapacitating. We're hoping to continue to have these sort of a few inches of snow here in the Northeast the rest of the winter. But it's nice to have a bit of it after uh, a couple of years now without it, which they blame both on climate change, but also on the El Nino pattern that we've been experiencing for the last year. All right, we'll have a lot more on the snow and the weather coming up. Let's get to some headlines here. All eyes on New Hampshire after Donald Trump's decisive victory in Iowa. The latest in the Middle East, a huge barrage of rockets from Gaza to Israel after Israel withdraws some troops from Gaza. What does this mean going forward? Meanwhile, Iran launching missile strikes in northern Iraq and Syria, saying that it wants to destroy an alleged Israeli spy base. As we were just talking about the first snow day in literally years (laughs) from New York to D.C. that no snow streak has officially ended. But the cold weather, not such good news for some Tesla drivers who struggled to get a charge in the Midwest. Some potentially good news for American families. The child's tax credit could expand this year. We'll break down the numbers. A new poll finds most Americans support the Supreme Court's decision to end affirmative action. And the Guinness Book of World Records' oldest dog, perhaps not as old as his owners said. This is a very serious investigation, folks. We'll tell you what the Guinness Book of World Records is finding out about the dog, Bobby, that we were told actually lived to the age of 31. And Moshe is on this day in history. Jill, a little Simon Garfunkel, a little Savage Garden, a little Kelly Clarkson. And we'll tell you on this day in history on how the U.S. was able to get both the Virgin Islands and Hawaii on this day. Some history there that many of you might not be familiar with. All right, it is the day after the day after the Iowa caucus. And now all eyes are on New Hampshire. A quick refresher in case you missed yesterday's podcast. Former President Trump dominating Iowa with a historic blowout with about 51% of the vote. Ron DeSantis came in a distant second with 21%, followed by Nikki Haley, close behind at 19%. As Politico put it, Donald Trump won twice in Iowa, first by securing an overwhelming margin of victory, And second, because Nikki Haley's claim as the only real alternative was damaged by her third place finish behind a limping Ron DeSantis. Still, both DeSantis and Haley now trying to frame their results as wins. As they would, Jill. As they would. (laughs) 
And I'll add, Jill, that I appreciate the fact that Nikki Haley didn't even bother to change her speech <laughs> on uh, Monday night, clearly written, assuming she would get in second place. And they're just like, ah, F it. We'll just give the speech that we would have given if we were in second. This is a two-person race, she, she said on Monday night. People are like, dude, you just finished in third place. <laughs> I get, Why bother rewriting it, right? <laughs> no, just like, you know what? Let's go with the reality we want to create. That's what we do as politicians. So for DeSantis, coming in third in Iowa would have potentially meant that he would have had to drop out of the race entirely. That said, it's unclear that a distant second for him is really that much better. For Haley, she said as part of that speech that was definitely written again before the results came in, uh, that she is the last best hope to prevent a Trump-Biden rematch. Polls show that she is in striking distance of Trump in New Hampshire, which votes next week. So there were two debates set for the next few days. Uh, One of them has already been canceled. The other one unlikely to happen. Nikki Haley says that she will debate only Trump or President Biden at this point, overlooking DeSantis, who she clearly does not see as competition anymore. She tried to challenge Trump to finally join on the debate stage. She said, we've had five great debates in this campaign. Unfortunately, Donald Trump has ducked all of them. He has nowhere left to hide. DeSantis firing back at Haley, writing on Twitter or X that Haley is, quote, afraid to debate because she doesn't want to answer the tough questions. As mentioned, there was a debate scheduled for tomorrow, but ABC News has now canceled it entirely. Right. Basically, it would have just been Ron DeSantis on a stage by himself. Jill and ABC is like, we don't know that that's an experience our viewers, you know, need to have. We'll stick to some alternative programming options. Not exactly compelling television. Um, anyway, Moshe, the dust has settled a bit since the Iowa caucus, which were the first votes cast in this election season. Your big takeaway was that this is still Trump's party. So if he had a 95 percent chance of winning the nomination prior to the caucus, that's been upped to about 97 percent. And just to walk. <laughs> right, right. Just just rough numbers there. Uh, but like that's kind of what our gut is here. Edmund. But just to walk through why that is, it's because with DeSantis coming in second in Iowa, he is now going to stay in the race, meaning Republicans who don't want Trump are going to be split, making it a lot more difficult for anybody else to beat him. Yeah, but we should say at the same time, even if DeSantis had to get out, right? A lot of DeSantis voters would probably go to Trump over Haley. He tends to, uh, both in terms of personality and issues, be much closer to Trump than Haley. So even with DeSantis getting out, that might push the Trump portion of the party to, say, 60% instead of 50%. So even with Haley competing against him, it's hard to see here, with given the state of the party, given the lack of sort of rabid excitement for Nikki Haley, I mean, she certainly does have a constituency, but you're not seeing, you know, a uh, movement around her. And that's really what you would need, right? Because what does Donald Trump have? A movement, MAGA, people who believe in him thick or thin, no matter what, right? Trump was impeached twice. He has four criminal indictments. He lost in 2020. He lost the midterms in 18. His candidates lost in 2022. But for the people who believe in Donald Trump and have fond memories of his presidency, they're like, listen, we think he's the best shot. We agree with him. And uh, Nikki Haley certainly was able to show in Iowa that she does have a constituency. New Hampshire is going to be very important to her. She was actually hoping to knock DeSantis out, by the way. That's why she spent, by the way, herself $30 million in Iowa to try to get to second place. But Iowa was not her territory, 
even though she had high hopes. Uh, so DeSantis lives another day, sort of, right, wounded right now with no clear constituency in New Hampshire, uh, not doing so great in Iowa either. And so she's overlooking him, right? You fight uh, up. You punch up in politics. You don't spend time punching down. So she's looking up to Trump saying, debate me. Let's do this. It's us. And Trump's saying, yeah, not so much. Uh, I am focused on Biden. And by the way, that's what you notice. The biggest insult in politics is not to be mentioned, is not to be criticized. And look what Trump did Monday night in his Iowa speech. He basically was like, time to come together, time to move on. He didn't even bother with his normal insults of Nikki Haley. The opposite of love is not hate, Mosh. It's indifference. (laughs) Correct. And that is a bit of what you heard on the stage from Trump on Monday night. Now, notably... This is not to say that Trump is going to completely ignore her or his super PACs are. Trump campaign knows that a Haley victory in New Hampshire, that Trump losing any state sort of takes a a chink out of his armor, takes a chink out of the facade that he's the inevitable nominee. So he needs this victory in New Hampshire next week, especially in a state where, like, if Nikki Haley is going to have a shot anywhere, it's in New Hampshire. A lot of moderates, independents. This is her constituency. This is a state that is sort of made for Nikki Haley and her politics. It's a state where John McCain won. It's a state where Chris Christie was doing well. It's a state where uh, you have a much more moderate Republican Party. Trump needs to destroy her. He wants to eliminate her. And if she cannot do well in New Hampshire or even get close to him, he knows this thing is done after two states. That's sort of where we're at right now. And that's what her donors would say. That's not me saying it. And some people are like, oh my God, why is it in this country that like we can only go through two states? What about the other 48? This is the way our system is built, folks. You know, Nikki Haley can stay as long as she wants. But if it's not clear that she can win anywhere, then what is she doing in the competition? Being in second place the entire time ain't going to win you the nomination. And you're going to run out of money at some point because people are like, what's the point of me donating to you? So that's all to say this next week is very important to her. She only saw downside in going into a two-hour debate with Ron DeSantis, who has no shot in New Hampshire. He only has an upside by doing those debates. Nikki only has a downside by making some sort of faux pas, having another one of those civil war type comments, etc. So as far as she's concerned, spend time with the voters, try to work those numbers, uh, get your face around in a small state to as many places as possible and make your argument. And that's going to be the key thing for her. What argument is she making to Republicans to convince them that Trump is done, that they need to go with her? And she has to tread carefully, as we've been discussing, in a party where people still have a very favorable opinion of Donald Trump. So she's been very careful in her critique here, right? That ultimately, I believed in him. I worked for him. So did you. But his time is past. He is too old. He brings chaos with him. I will do many of the things that he did, but I'll be successful at them. And I'm a new generation. And I'm effective. And so that's a bit of the argument that she's making along with, I can destroy Joe Biden in November. By the way, the polling does back her up on that. But at the same time, polling shows right now that Trump has an advantage against Joe Biden, not as much as Nikki. So she's making a process argument. And it's hard to make, you know, to draw passion from what is effectively a pundit argument, which is like, look at the latest (laughs) poll numbers. Look at my margin of error. Is not something that convinces (laughs) me in cold New Hampshire weather or frankly, other state to be like, you know what we should vote for? Did you see that Wall Street Journal poll (laughs) last week? We really have to vote for that candidate. It is notable, Mosh, that Trump's first stop after winning Iowa was in New York to appear in court for a case in which a jury is going to determine how much he owes in damages for defaming writer E. Jean Carroll by denying that he sexually assaulted her and accusing her of lying. 
One of the data points that I found particularly interesting here, Mosh, and a few analysts were talking about it, is that Trump really saw a turnaround in terms of his campaigning when the court cases started. Actually, when that first New York case with the Stormy Dan accusing him of, of the hush money payments for Stormy Daniels, his campaign had kind of been flatlining and then all of a sudden got this huge boost because Republicans really bought into the argument that he was being unfairly targeted. Yeah, he's got the four criminal indictments, which he's going to trial for. He's got the civil cases, right? He's got the New York civil case uh, where he could be banned from doing business in New York. Uh, And then there's the civil case. So, you know, literally a few hours after declaring victory, you know, showing that he is the Republican nominee again, or trying to make that case saying, you know, this thing's over. He's in New York. He's in court. He's already been found liable of sexually abusing the writer. Uh, She was awarded $5 million in damages back in May. But then Trump continued to defame her, kept uh, saying that she's lying about being raped. So there's a new civil case. She's demanding millions more from him for defaming her again in court. And I don't know of any other politician that literally could be found liable for sexual assault and have four criminal indictments. uh, And yet... Uh, continue to, you know, be so uh, supported by their party. But Trump is unique in this way and his ability to sort of weave this story and continue to survive and thrive in politics. So it is a reminder that we will continue to watch the legal issues this year. And while they do not appear to be having an impact in the Republican primary, the question remains in the summer and fall, depending, of course, on what Joe Biden has to say about this stuff, how independent voters will feel about the legal stuff it doesn't bother the Republican base, but remember, everybody votes in November. Okay, now to the Middle East, where the war between Israel and Hamas is going on more than 100 days. There was a large rocket barrage fired from Gaza at southern Israel on Tuesday. The Israeli military telling local media there that it came from a location in the central part of Gaza Strip where the IDF recently withdrew its troops. As we've reported, the IDF had said it would withdraw troops from Gaza as it gears up for this next phase of the war, which is expected to include smaller targeted operations against Hamas. It is unclear if this rocket barrage is going to force Israel to perhaps change its strategy at all. But the U.S. has really been pushing for this as a way to minimize Palestinian civilian casualties It's estimated by the Hamas-run health ministry that about 23,000 Palestinians in Gaza have been killed, including a large number of women and children. Israel says it includes thousands of Hamas militants. The UN says more than 80% of residents have been displaced and about 60% of buildings have been damaged. So, so far in this war, again, we're more than 100 days in now, it's been very difficult for Western journalists to get inside Gaza. The Israelis have blocked journalists from going in. There's been uh, protests actually going up to the Israeli Supreme Court fighting this. Uh, and so far to no avail. The Egyptians are not letting anybody in as well. So we find it notable that among uh, the few groups of journalists that have been able to go deeply into Gaza uh, was the New York Times this week. Uh, two journalists embedded with the Israeli military. According to their report, senior Israeli defense officials now assess that that tunnel network under Gaza, which again is about nine miles by 20 miles, the tunnels underneath at multiple levels are as long as 450 miles, 450 miles of tunnels going in circles under Gaza. And that is far longer than previously believed. They thought it was a couple hundred miles of tunnels. Now it's upwards of 450 miles of tunnels. 
at its longest point, the territory is, again, 25 miles long. So just the web of these tunnels underneath is just incredible here. And Hamas has been accused of spending uh, hundreds of millions of dollars um, in aid meant for the people on building these military tunnels through these years. The Israelis now say that there are upwards of 5,700 separate shafts leading into the tunnels. And one thing they've discovered as they've been starting to really get a sense of these tunnels, which they now believe will take years to destroy, is what they call a triangle system, that oftentimes they find tunnels underneath a school, a hospital, or a mosque, hence the triangle there. And it really reinforces, Jill, why they haven't really been able to do much in the way of rescuing the hostages if there are, in fact, more than 400 miles of tunnels underground, many with booby traps, etc., uh, so a uh, incredible labyrinth down there. The journalists for The Times describe Gaza as a ruined wasteland. We've seen these pictures. We've shared them with you over on the uh, Mo News uh, Instagram account. The Israelis continue to say this thing would be over tomorrow if uh, Hamas gave up and gave up the hostages. But you know, ultimately, the destruction here and casualties are due to Hamas not acquiescing here. The Times writing that, you know, buildings collapsed everywhere, floors stacked on top of each other like piles of books, a tower blocks, missing sections, and every village right now that they pass through bearing major marks of the work. Meanwhile, we continue to watch this war across the region. The U.S. military says it is still looking, searching, actually, for two Navy SEALs presumed dead. They went overboard while searching a small boat off the coast of Somalia, CENTCOM saying that the team had found Iranian missile parts that were headed for those Houthi rebels in Yemen, including propulsion, guidance, and warheads for ballistic missiles and anti-ship cruise missiles. CENTCOM saying that the arms that were discovered by the SEALs were the same type of weapons that the Houthis had been using to attack those commercial shipping vessels in the Red Sea. Yeah, keep in mind when you when you zoom in on a map of that region, you have the Horn of Africa there, right, with Somalia and then inland Ethiopia, Eritrea, and then Djibouti, where uh, there's a major U.S. base that's just across from Yemen. Uh, as all ships pass through the Red Sea there, they have to pass through that area between Yemen and Somalia. And so uh, that is an urgent situation happening off the coast there. Meanwhile, the U.S. launched a new round of strikes against the Houthis in Yemen, targeting what officials say were four missiles apparently being readied for attack on commercial shipping vessels. That operation yesterday now marks the third time in less than a week that the U.S. military and coalition partners have taken action against that Iranian-backed terror group in Yemen. It signals here, Jill, as we've been telling everybody, that this could be the beginning of a longer campaign. Keep in mind the Houthis are coming off of a decade-long war uh, where they were successful in taking over a portion of the country, including the capital, going up against a lot of Western weaponry being used by Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia fighting the Houthis, the Houthis backed by Iran. Uh, and so the Houthis say, this is yet another fight for us. This is what we do. The U.S. striking back, try to open up the uh, shipping strait there. But you can see a scenario here where the U.S. will have to ratchet things up because uh, the Houthis show no signs right now of letting up nor do the Iranians. Speaking of Iran, their Revolutionary Guard, this is their military operation abroad uh, that is connected to the terror network, launched ballistic missiles in Iraq on Monday. They say they were claiming they were targeting an Israeli spy base in Iraq. Uh, the claim for a while now is that uh, they believe the Kurdish territory in northern Iraq, that they allow the Israelis to cooperate. No confirmation there. Uh, but this is the not the first in these types of attacks that we've seen. 
And now that is among more than 100 attacks we've seen from Iran or Iran-backed groups uh, across U.S. and Western assets across Iraq and Syria. Okay, we have plenty of news after the break, but wanted to mention a couple of our amazing sponsors. For one, Factor Meals. I know, Mosh, you and I are both pressed for time in our homes and do want to eat healthy and nutritious meals. So that's why we are so excited about Factor. It's America's number one ready-to-eat meal delivery service. They can help you fuel up fast for breakfast, lunch, and dinner with chef-prepared, dietitian-approved, ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. So if you've got a New Year's resolution that you want to eat a little bit better, Factor can definitely help you with that. I have been loving them. You just grab them straight from the fridge, heat them up, And they are legit delicious. It's not like getting a frozen grocery store dinner. And Moshe, in your house, I know you do like to cook. My house, not so much. Well, hold on. I I should be clear. My wife is a great cook. (laughs) I aspire one day to cook, yes. (laughs) Um, But just to not have to deal with the chopping, prepping, cleaning up, and still getting the flavor and nutritional quality you need. Uh, Can't beat it. Factors fresh, never frozen meals are ready in just two minutes. So all you've got to do is heat and enjoy. You could choose from more than 35 weekly meals. They have lunch to go like grain bowls and salad toppers that don't need a microwave at all. There are cold pressed juices, shakes and smoothies ready in two minutes. No prep, no mess. Head over to factormeals.com slash monews50 and use the code monews50 to get 50% off. That is monews50 at factormeals.com. Again, uh, Monu's 5-0 to get 50% off. All right, now to one of our longtime partners, Athletic Greens, uh, AG1. If you're a longtime listener, you might know I've been drinking AG1 for more than a year now. Jill has as well. When I started drinking it, I could feel a real difference in my energy. And especially now that I'm a new dad, I can use all the help that I can get. AG1, really a foundational nutrition supplement that supports your universal needs, that is prebiotics, probiotics, all the vitamins uh, that you need, as well as immune support. It's just one scoop of powder with water in the morning, and then you can get on with your day knowing you've gotten more than 70 key vitamins and minerals. The great thing over at AG1 is they continue to optimize the formula, adding the latest and greatest to ensure that you're getting everything that you need. And what's great is they're offering a special deal to the Monus community. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. You can try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D, as well as five free travel packs. If you head over to drinkag1.com slash monews, that is drink. A-G, the number one, dot com, slash Monews. Again, a one-year supply of vitamin D, as well as five free travel packs as part of that special deal for this community. All right, time for the speed read from USA Today. School was canceled for millions. Travel was chaotic. And the federal government closed offices around the nation's capital Tuesday as a wall of bitter cold temperatures, ice and snow descended on a big part of the country. This sweeping mass of Arctic air down from Canada delivered sub-freezing temperatures to three-fourths of the nation. 68 million Americans were under a winter weather advisory Tuesday. And finally, New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Washington, D.C. saw an end to snow droughts that lasted almost two years. So you got about four inches of snow in the Washington, D.C. area, closing a ton of businesses and, and schools. New York's Central Park got more than one inch of snow for the first time in 701 days. 
Philadelphia saw more than an inch for the first time in 715 days. Baltimore's 1.4 inches snapped their streak of 716 days. And as we mentioned, Washington, D.C. snapping its one-inch streak of 728 days. A lot of fun for the kids, but also a lot of headaches, Mosh, which I, I guess we'll leave to you to talk about. I got the fun part. Yeah, the kids had fun. If you're looking to travel... Good luck to you. You probably are stuck wherever you were intending to leave yesterday. More than 10,000 flights canceled or delayed as of uh, the early evening on Monday. That number continues to rise. When you look over the weekend, more than 36,000 disruptions between Saturday and Monday over the holiday weekend. Uh, Power outages out in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, I've been hearing from a number of you in Oregon who are worried that your power could be out for a week or more. Uh, with all these down power lines due to ice storms you had out there. In Nashville, you got more snow in a day than you normally get in a year, more than eight inches. And the story about weather really continues across the country here. The northern Rockies could see several feet of snow. You're much more used to that in the Rockies than you are in Nashville. And then there's the record-breaking cold across the Great Plains, the Midwest. Wind chills going down to negative 30 uh, could now extend as far south as the Mississippi Valley. So uh, watch your weather report out there, especially in some parts of the country where you're not used to some of this really cold weather. And if you're traveling, pack your patience. (laughs) Especially, Jill, if you have a Tesla. Yes, uh, from NPR and other weather-related news, the Arctic air gripping much of the U.S. put Tesla drivers in Chicago in a tough spot on Monday Many of the cars sat in long lines at supercharger stations. Their owners saying that the cold sapped the electric vehicle's normal ability to charge and keep a charge. Drivers spoke about how the cold seemed to drain their batteries more quickly than normal. On Monday, areas of Chicago spent about 35 to 36 hours below zero degrees. The challenges that Tesla owners are facing are not specific to Tesla. It is these lithium ion batteries, which are used in everything from smartphones to the Model S sedan. They are notoriously susceptible to cold, particularly when temperatures are below freezing. I've had this happen with my phone. Um, I mean, my phone has like no charge at this point left, but it's something that happens often, right? Um, You see that your smartphone just doesn't last as long in the cold weather. Yeah, what are you, still on the iPhone 10 there, Jill? <laughs> yes, judgy. <laughs> <laughs> Though, honestly, it hits everybody. You pull your phone out uh, and you see that battery deplete. You're probably worse off with a 10 there, Jill. It might be, get, it might be time to hit the 15. It's, it is time. Okay. <laughs> but it's one thing to lose your phone charge. It's another thing to be stuck with your car uh, with these batteries. Tesla, of course, recommends that you keep the vehicle plugged in uh, as much as possible during cold weather, maintain a charge of at least 20%. Though Tesla does not have a PR department, Jill, uh, like most of Elon Musk's companies. So they didn't have much comment on this besides that there are preparations you can make uh, in order to ensure your car is charged. But of course, uh, still uh, thousands of Tesla drivers across the Chicago area waiting in long lines uh, for these supercharger stations. Uh, one of the challenges, again, as we transition to electric vehicles that we'll have to face in the coming years, which is what to do in these extreme temperatures. Uh, and that's where the more traditional uh, gas-powered cars still seem to do pretty well, whereas the electric cars with all the electronics, the battery, etc., Uh, haven't quite adapted to those environments. You can imagine in future build-outs, in future models, uh, hopefully they find a way to make batteries persevere better in these cold temps. It's called gas, Mosh. 
<laughs> Look at you. Drill, baby, drill. Jill sounds like a, a Republican <laughs> Iowa caucus goer. I, I, I am no Tesla owner, but uh, according to their website, they say as long as you defrost the car and set the cabin's climate uh, before attempting to drive and go through the various protocols, they say there should be no problem. Okay, from the Washington Post, congressional negotiators announced a roughly $80 billion deal on Tuesday to expand the federal child tax credit that if it becomes law would make the program more generous, primarily for low-income parents. As soon as this year, this was a bipartisan deal negotiated by a Republican and Democrat, uh, as is the definition of bipartisan. But any bill's path to passage remains uncertain, particularly because some House Republicans could be reluctant to give President Biden even a partial victory on one of his top domestic economic policy priorities, bringing back something like the expanded child tax credit, which was a centerpiece of his 2021 American Rescue Plan. So this deal would make the existing child tax credit more generous, which is a major Democratic priority. And in exchange, it would also continue several business tax breaks that were favored by corporate America, a Republican priority. The deal emerged in part, however, because of substantial bipartisan support for both provisions across both parties. Though we should note this is still not passed. Congress actually still has to pass it. It has to then be sent to President Biden. And we know that Congress often has deals until they don't. So we're going to be monitoring this. But this should be good news for a lot of Americans if it goes through. If you recall, during COVID, there was an expansion of the child tax credit uh, that pulled millions of families uh, out of poverty that really helped. It's something we actually discussed in a recent podcast we did in late December about poverty in America with Matthew Desmond. So check that out in the podcast feed. It was called America Can Solve Poverty on uh, December 26th. Back to the issue at hand here when it comes to the child tax credit. Uh, right now, it gives most parents $2,000 per child. But if you don't make enough money for that tax credit, you get much less. And so what this would do is boost the tax credit uh, if you make less than 50 grand, if you make less than 20 grand or 10 grand in America uh, to also enable you to better benefit from the child tax credit, which means a lot. Uh, you know, if you make 150 grand a year and have a couple of kids, you get $2,000 per kid. That's great. If you make $20,000 a year and you're able to get a couple grand per kid or close to it, that's potentially life changing. And so there was this expanded tax credit that expired post COVID to trying to bring a version of it back. And again, it'll uh, really benefit some low income families. For everybody, though, it'll also uh, tie the child tax credit to inflation in future years. So as inflation goes up, the $2,000 per child uh, for many families will go up over time with inflation. From Politico, the majority of Americans believe the Supreme Court's ruling last year that ended affirmative action for universities around the country is, quote, Mostly a good thing. According to a new poll, 68% of respondents said they viewed the decision favorably, while 32% said it's, quote, mostly a bad thing. This is according to a Gallup Center on Black Voices survey that was published on Tuesday. Black Americans were the most divided in their responses. 52% were in favor of the decision and 48% were against it. White adults view it most favorably. Jill, there was an interesting split among black Americans in that survey, a generational split. While more than 50% of those 40 and older viewed the Supreme Court decision negatively, 62% of black Americans uh, under the age of 40 viewed it positively. This is notable as in we're just about six months removed now from the Supreme Court 
ending affirmative action in higher education. Uh, effectively, that policy for decades allowed universities to give preference to applicants from various minority groups. And the Supreme Court in June, after several decades, struck down race-conscious admissions. The decision was along ideological lines, as they found that universities were actually discriminating against white and Asian uh, applicants by using race-conscious uh, policies. So basically, a different form of discrimination is how the Supreme Court ruled here. Notable to see these numbers now uh, six months out. From CNN, a federal judge is siding with the Biden administration and blocking JetBlue Airways from buying Spirit Airlines, saying that the $3.8 billion deal would reduce competition. The Justice Department sued to block the merger, saying it would drive up fares by eliminating Spirit, the nation's biggest low-cost airline. JetBlue argued that the deal would help consumers by making JetBlue a stronger competitor against bigger rivals that dominate the U.S. air travel market. The proposed merger would have created the nation's fifth largest airline. Yeah, that was JetBlue's hope here uh, to compete with the four biggies. They are American, Delta, Southwest, and United. Collectively, those four control about two-thirds of the market. The merger would have given JetBlue about 10% of the market. By the way, that's just shy of United. While we think of United as this large airline, United controls about 16% of the market. So it would have brought JetBlue pretty close to United here. The lawyers for JetBlue are disappointed here. They say, again, that it would have brought prices down overall. That's typically the argument uh, that you make when you're seeking a big merger. Justice Department's like, no, 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 no. We need to maintain low-cost options. This also is sort of CYA by the government after allowing dozens and dozens of mergers over the last 20 years. You know, the country 25 years ago probably had several dozen airlines. And now we're basically just left with a handful after they approved or allowed all these mergers to go through all these years. And this ruling, we should note, comes just weeks after Alaska Airlines announced plans to acquire Hawaiian Airlines, a much smaller merger. But if approved, that would give Alaska 8% of the market and remains to be seen whether the government will uh, allow that merger to go through. And finally, from CNN, the Guinness Book of World Records has taken back a recent record now under investigation. Do we have a law and order effect here? <laughs> bum, bum. Um, this goes back to a story that we first told you about in the fall. The world's oldest ever dog, Bobby, who died in October, reportedly at the age of 31. He has now provisionally lost his title as the Guinness World Records investigates his age. A Guinness spokesperson saying, quote, while a review is ongoing, we've decided to temporarily pause both the record titles for oldest dog living and ever just until all of our findings are in place. Bobby's age had initially been confirmed by the veterinary service in Portugal, which said that he had been registered in 1992 with the Portuguese government authorized pet database. So he was reportedly 31 years and 165 days old when he died in October However, suspicions began to emerge soon after his death regarding the evidence that reportedly proved his true age. The only animal who's trying to lie about being older than they are, Moshe. <laughs> well, I guess unless you're trying to buy booze. Yeah, I, I, I take that back. <laughs> I, I don't know what Bobby, I don't know whether Bobby tried to lie here, but his owner, certainly, uh, that's the larger question. Bobby, by the way, was a Portuguese Mastiff. Uh, he had beaten the record Previously held by an Australian cattle dog named what else from Australia? Bluey was the name of that dog. That dog had lived 29 years uh, and previously held a record. <laughs> so congrats, Bluey. You hold the record again uh, as they now investigate whether Bobby actually lived 
past 30, which, by the way, equates to more than 200 human years. There's a lot of skeptics out there who are like, there's no way this dog lived that long. Some observers had noted that some of the images of Bobby through the years showed that he had different colored paws in the 90s than from the paws in photos shown more recently. And uh, ultimately, I think the key thing here that they're pointing to is that the age here is based on self-certification, as in the owner tells the veterinary service what the age of the dog is. Uh, I don't know if they're going to go to genetic testing, uh, pull (laughs) the dog's remains, Jill, but the Guinness Book of World Record is on to them. They're going to have to investigate this. The owner right now is not commenting. So if you have a really old dog, you're going to just have to enjoy your dog uh, because it's been around for a long time because the Guinness Book World Records doesn't want to take your phone call right now. They're pausing the whole thing. No more of this oldest dog competition as far as they're concerned, at least not for now. By the way, I should note, if you have a duck for 30 years, like congr- that's amazing. That's amazing. Like you, you, you must be doing something right. But if there is now pictures of the dog with different paws and, and all that, how long was this scheme going on? I mean, we had this person just from the beginning been like, we are going to dupe the Guinness Book of World <laughs> Records. Right, right. This is like, this is a very long play, right? Like <laughs> your dog was born in the 90s. Okay. You're like... I'm, I'm, I'm going to win this record. I don't know. This is a small town in Portugal. You know, I don't know much about the legitimacy of the Portuguese veterinary service and the self-certification requirements. But honestly, Jill, based on what I'm reading so far, it sounds like they're more thorough and comprehensive than some of these Iowa caucus sites, frankly. To know that this owner was totally playing the long game. Can you imagine? One day in 30 years, I will beat Bluey's record and I will get my dog in the Guinness records. You know, it's funny, Jill. We uh, joked in my family, uh, my grandmother and her sisters, when they uh, emigrated from Morocco, they had a chance to basically declare their new ages when they got to Israel. And they all made themselves younger by a couple of years. Uh, I guess it's the opposite in this case. Because, you know, for years, we never quite knew the ages of my great aunts <laughs> and my grandmother because they literally, <laughs> my understanding based on my family, is that they all used the opportunity when they immigrated to sort of make themselves a bit younger. 29. Yep. <laughs> at one point, my father's, like, like, at one point my father's like, you're my aunt. You're not that young. We're not the same age. All right, on this day in history, as we talk about age here, we're going to start in 1893. And this is a history we've done a deep dive on over on the Mo News Premium Instagram account. On this day in history, acting for Hawaiian sugar interests and American allies, a committee led by Sanford Dole deposed the Queen of Hawaii, Lila Kalani, on this day in 1893, installing a provisional government with Dole as president. You might know that last name Dole, bananas, pineapples, etc., Well, Sanford Dole, on this day in history, basically launched a coup on the Queen of Hawaii. It would help ensure that the U.S. would effectively take over uh, Hawaii in the subsequent years. In other U.S. acquisition of islands news, on this day in 1917, the U.S. bought the Virgin Islands from Denmark for $25 million. Denmark was in need of cash. The U.S. at the time was worried about German takeover of those islands as part of World War I, bringing them close to the U.S. border. Now, for a bit, Denmark wouldn't sell. And at one point, the U.S. basically said to Denmark, if you don't sell, we're going to just invade it ourselves and take it, leading Denmark to say, you know what, we'll take the deal. And so they sold the Virgin Islands on this day to President Woodrow Wilson. All right, on this day in 1961, in his farewell address, President Dwight D. Eisenhower warned that the U.S. must guard against 
the influence of what he called the military-industrial complex. Eisenhower, who uh, was the commander who helped lead the U.S. to victory in World War II, and then, of course, a two-term president, felt that if left unchecked, the military-industrial complex could undermine American democracy. Basically, his argument is that major weapons makers would continue to push more defense spending, lead the U.S. to more wars um, over the decades. Some would say that uh, Eisenhower's warnings were not heeded, uh, and we have been dealing with the ramifications of that now for decades. And a U.S. Supreme Court case that made a huge difference on this day in 1984, the Supreme Court ruled that the sale and use of uh, VHS, of video recorders at home, to be able to record programming and view it later was, in fact, legal. At that time, the movie studios were arguing, no, 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 this is bad for business, this should be made illegal. And the Supreme Court said, no, we should allow uh, home video recording. So uh, an important precedent when it comes to home entertainment by the Supreme Court on this day in 1984, uh, which leads us to our last portion here, as we always get into it, pop culture, on this day in 1966. The Sound of Silence. Simon and Garfunkel released their second album, Joe. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. On cue, my loud family is coming up the stairs, motion. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, family, my old friend. <laughs> We've come to talk with you again. The sound of silence. What is that? On this day in 1998, uh, for all of you who remember 90s music, Savage Garden, remember them? They came out with Truly Madly Deeply. Uh, and reached number one on the Billboard charts on this day 26 years ago. And fast forward to the 21st century. And on this day in 2012, the first American Idol winner, Kelly Clarkson, this was years later actually, came out with Stronger, What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Stronger. It was released on this day in 2012. Wait, I cannot believe, by the way, that you just asked if Justin, what, what's his last name? I, off, off camera, folks, I asked <laughs> if Justin Guarini beat Kelly Clarkson in that first American Idol. And I guess if you were of a certain age at that time, you were glued to the TV. It was like must-see TV. I remember walking by bars in New York City and everyone was playing it oh, like it was a sports oh, game. American I mean, some Idol. of these names from that era, like, like I remember like, you know, watching those first few seasons of like Catherine McPhee and Kelly Pickler. I mean, these are like, I don't know what it was, but like I, 20 years later, Jill, like taking up space in my brain where I could like have much more useful information, <laughs> including like names of people I met recently at parties where like, then they meet me again. I'm like, nice to meet you. And they're like, no, 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 we've met before. I'm like, oh crap. Because you know what's in my head? Justin Guarini, like is still in my head. Like knowing that... <laughs> <laughs> Chris Daughtry like I remember these performances I remember using my like cell phone at the time the T9 cell phone and like texting to like vote for people so anyway <laughs> I never voted <laughs> and and the only reason I remember Guarini and questioning whether he won is because like there have been a few people who uh, didn't win American Idol but went on to be famous so I was like for a hot second I was like maybe that was Kelly Clarkson but no like you know I'm thinking of, like Jennifer Hudson who didn't win but went on to be famous right, right? like you know there's a few of those names out there where like they didn't win but uh, ultimately, we still sort of know them uh, because they got far enough along. And vice versa. There are people who won that haven't really done as well as expected. Not so much. Yeah, they had a few. Uh, they, you know, I, I, I think you could probably say Kelly Clarkson, to bring it full circle here, probably the most successful American Idol alum. Yeah, she's now a talk show host, Mosh. So 
Who isn't, uh, Jill? We, we got a talk show. <laughs> I, Kelly Clarkson has a talk show. <laughs> I mean, we didn't need American Idol. Next thing we know, she'll have a podcast. I mean, she probably does. The Kelly Clarkson Show podcast. <laughs> I mean, they probably they probably put the show on the pod. If they don't, why, what are they waiting for? All right. Well, thank you for listening to our podcast, the Mo News Podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And review us in the App Store. We got to check if Justin Guarini is following us on the uh, Instagram account. <laughs> <laughs> like that anyway folks thanks for listening we got a couple more days left in this week i hope you're staying warm out there and uh i hope you're getting to your destination and you weren't too impacted by those delays yesterday all right bye everyone thanks for listening to the mo news podcast